1: So go to squarespace.com stuff right now, and you will face a free trial. And when you get ready to launch, use our offer code STUFF, and then you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. How could you go wrong with Squarespace?
0: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and Jerry's here, too. And this is Stuff You Should Know. And boy, do we mean it. This is Stuff You Should Know. Even though, I have to admit, Chuck, I don't think I've ever gotten sleepier than I was when I was researching this this <laughs> episode.
0: You know, I've learned more about the law since we got this job than I ever wanted to or intended to. <laughs> right. Uh Some of like, you know, just because we have work contracts for the first time. So some of it's because of that. Some of it because of all the trouble we get in. Yeah. All the trouble we've gotten in over the years. Mm -hmm. And then we just kind of covered a lot of stuff, legally speaking. And it's interesting, the law. (laughs) It is. It is. And this one was like, it was kind of
1: tough because um, Olivia helped us out with this. And it was like, it's a, a really, unless you're in the legal profession one way or another, like, it's really dry, like, incredibly dry. But if you can just chip past that crusty dryness. It's still pretty dry. It (laughs) it takes a lot, yeah. It gets a little (laughs) moisture the further you get in. But finally, you get to the rich, nuggety center. Yeah. And there you realize, whoa, this is actually super important because what we're talking about, legal precedents, um, kind of guides our society in a lot of, a lot of ways beyond just this is law, this is not law um, this is illegal you can do this like that we actually organize our lives in surprising ways according to what's legal and what's not and as if the law is steady and stable, which is the point of you know relying on legal precedences we'll find then you know, society can kind of grow and experiment and try new things because the law part is covered. But if the law is going to change every couple of years, it makes it really hard to um, be in a gay marriage or start a business or invest in a like kind of a risky new technology because there's, you can't rely on the law being stable. So it makes life for us unstable. And I didn't really realize just how much of a, just an effect that that law has like an unseen effect on just our day-to-day lives. Cause you don't think about that kind of thing, but until you start researching something like this.
0: Right. And, or until you get slapped with that lawsuit and all of a sudden you're like, what? <laughs> right. uh, so much about the law too is uh, attorneys love words. Yes. <laughs> um, the the simple, I mean, anyone who's ever, even if you've never dealt with an attorney, great, congratulations. I'm not saying attorneys are bad, but that means you You know, you have a blissfully simplistic way of living that is to be admired, but uh, you've probably clicked on a terms of service or something. And, Mm. you know, that's all legal words. It's all legal wording, like those, you know, 900,000 words to sign up for a website or whatever or to download an app. Those are words written by attorneys, and so much of law is so specific to it can hinge on the uh, the wrong couple of words that a well-meaning uh, jurist mm-hmm. typed up in their decision. Just a couple of things can really change things. A couple of words, yeah, uh, because it's all about those words and how those words are interpreted right. by others. And and um, it's I don't know that part about it. I find pretty fascinating. And I think For sure. every attorney I know really like. Um, values words. <laughs> Let's just say that. And not like, oh, because they could charge for it. I mean, you know, they value like, boy, you better be careful about how you say something, you know?
1: Yeah, it's true. Which really doesn't jibe with me because I'm pretty hyperbolic. And I just assume everybody's going to understand that I'm being hyperbolic. But that's not always the case, especially, I guess, now that I think about it, it's when I'm talking to lawyers that it really, <laughs> it really gets lost.
0: Uh, so I guess we should go back to the early 1100s, uh, specifically 1154, when Henry II um, kind of codified the fact that they were uh, going to be in England was going to be working on something called common law mm-hmm. or at least towards something called common law, because you'll see it takes Precedent and common law and this kind of thing takes a long time to really take hold uh, for a lot of reasons we'll get to. But uh, it was common law because they said, hey, right now we're deciding these cases all over the land and everyone Mm -hmm. has their own opinion. And it's a bit Mm -hmm. of a mess. So maybe if we had one sort of common law for all the kingdom and there were, you know, we could refer to that law and these decisions to make. Decisions on down the line, that mm-hmm. might be a pretty smart thing. And it was, and it is. Yeah. Cause I mean,
1: the stuff that they were doing locally was like, if you couldn't tell the truth between, you know, a plaintiff and a defendant, you had them both snatch a rock out of a pot of boiling water. <laughs> I'm sure. not kidding. <laughs> I and then whoever whoever healed fastest was telling the truth. Uh-huh. And then you would execute the one who healed slower. Like that was the kind <laughs> of legal stuff you would face like at this time. So Henry II, the idea that he came up with common law that said, all this is nuts. We're just going to have one law for all of England. Um, it was really forward thinking. And when you dig into it a little more, he established trial by jury, um, the uh, concept of circuit courts, um, that, that comes from this uh, time when judges would travel around and, and go to, like, different localities to hear cases. And the fact that they weren't rooted to one specific locale meant that it was m- much more difficult to corrupt them. There was a lot of really forward-thinking stuff. And the basis of it, Chuck, the common law formed the foundation of not just England's law, but basically every country that was colonized by England— Including the United States, we have a common law system, which is—I um, I don't want to say the opposite, but it's the—it's one of two basic
0: ways that you can conduct your society legally, and the other one is civil law. Right. Even though Henry the Second was still like, "I'd still like to bob for apples and bats of acid," <laughs> right. because that's just fun. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, civil law is not the way we went. Um, that was, you know, it was kind of developed around the same time in, in Europe back in the day, but that's uh, common law was the smarter approach. And what we got out, what we realized early on with common laws was what we needed to adhere by was a principle that you've heard a lot kind of lately. Uh, it's a Latin term meaning let the decision stand, uh, mm-hmm. stare decisis. Right. And that's, and that's a that's, big deal.
1: Yeah, and that's—I mean—it's not like Henry the Second came up with common law and said, and also it's—it's it's going to be based on this concept of stare decisis. That actually evolved over time, and the idea behind stare decisis is if there's a good decision made by a, a judge, um, then later judgments about cases that have some similarities or a lot in common with that case that that original decision was made on, have to follow that same precedent it's a legal precedent
0: necessarily say again i don't even know that i would agree that it's uh, based on a good decision because Mm. originally it was like they even said it it was as long as it wasn't flatly absurd or unjust right and they have said later on that like and we'll, we'll get to it but you know the decisions don't have to be perfect right right the i guess what i meant by good was good meaning like
1: not like the judge wasn't wearing a tinfoil hat and sentenced the person to, like, eat their own poop. I mean, good, like, they, like, it was reasonable, it was thought out, it was, you know, deliberative, like, it was a sound judicial opinion, whether
0: it actually was good or not. Right. Okay, Okay. I'll buy that. All right, Uh But here's the deal, like I said earlier, like, applying common law and applying precedent is something that takes a long, long time, because early on, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but one of the main reasons is early on, the courts were such a mess. They they didn't even start recording, really, um, their decisions in a really meaningful way uh, until, like, the mid-1800s in England, the early 1800s in the U.S. So they may not have even known there might have been precedent in right. any given case. But starting, like I said, early 1800s and mid-1800s in England, we started to have a real sort of precedent, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Yeah, for
1: sure. And we talked about that in our Unsung Heroes of the Court with our, I think, our transcriptionist segment, right? I think so. I think so, too. But the reason that um, that you have this this emphasis on precedence is because in a common law system, law kind of builds on judgment after judgment. And the more judgments you have about like a particular um, the topic or, or, you know, case or something, the more well-rounded and robust, the idea of the law concerning that goes. Like in a civil or in a common law society, the legislature makes a law, but it's not, you know, they don't try to lay out every single law with every single possible outcome that they can think of. That's what civil law is based on. In common law, it's like they lay it out It kind of makes sense. It's open to interpretation, and then people start suing each other. And then over the years, the judges figure it out. But they figure it out by basing their assumptions on the previous rulings of other judges. Right. That sounds
0: like a good breaking point. I think so, too. I'm at my breaking point. No, not already. (laughs) Yep. All right. Josh is out in the first third, but we'll press on. And uh, we'll talk about the U.S. system right after this.
1: how lucky we were to have you guys.
0: This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, everybody. It's time you heard about Squarespace. Squarespace has the tools you need to create and sell your own website, whether it's an online course or custom merch. with Squarespace courses. And right now, go to squarespace.com stuff for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code stuff to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace. You know, true love is always being excited from the first moment you see one another. And every time after that, It's taking long walks together in the summer. or gazing longingly into each other's eyes and watching their tail wag when they chase a squirrel in the yard.
0: Well, the pedigree brand asked about believing and love at first sight. And honestly, the answer is yes. Uh, As everyone knows from listening to this show, we have pulled all of our dogs off the street that Emily and I have had over the years, either right off the street or through a local shelter and working with them. And they've all become valued family members, and we think they've appreciated it too. Yeah, Chuck,
1: there is a pedigree loyalty survey that found that 90% of first-time dog owners report having a dog improved at least one of their relationships, and 80% of first-time dog owners are overwhelmingly more likely to have made at least one new connection as a result of getting a dog. And 95% of all dog owners say that the bond they have with their dogs is closer than they ever expected. Not a big surprise.
0: That's true. We all know that adopting a dog can lead to a lifetime meaningful connection and real love can exist between a pet and a pet parent. You got that straight. Pedigree is committed to helping more dogs find loving homes. Opening your home to a dog can help open your heart. And Love at First Sight is closer than you think because it's available at your local dog shelter.
1: Yeah, very important point. You can find love at first sight with the Pedigree Adoption Drive. From June 7th to June 9th. And the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees
0: nationwide. That's right. So just visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. Uh, All right, so Josh is gone, everybody. (laughs) I'm going to do the rest of this one solo. So we're just going to talk about cartoons and breakfast cereals. Josh? (laughs) I'm back, I'm back. Oh, he's back, okay. I couldn't leave you, Chuck. Uh, So if we're going to talk about the the U.S. system as far as legal precedent goes, we need to talk a little bit, obviously, about the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Constitution of the U.S., doesn't really talk a lot about how the court system should operate. Uh, they don't talk about precedent. This is something that the United States, uh, you know, it, it goes from the top down here in the U.S. And we'll talk about it gets really confusing uh, at some point as far as which courts bind with other courts. So that that mess will follow. But mm-hmm. uh, it goes top down. So the Supreme Court is, is really what's, ultimately matters and what they decide about the really important cases because everything binds upwards to them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But they didn't really, like, they kind of made it up as they went, and that's not to, like, knock the Supreme Court. It just is to say there weren't any real rules in place as far as this goes. But they realized early on, and I think in 1932 is when it really became serious, when a justice named uh, Louis Brandeis, a uh, Brandeis University fame. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. Of course. Uh, Wrote in a dissent in a case Burnett versus uh, Coronado Oil and Gas Company. Mm -hmm. um, Basically laid out what stare decisis is all about for everyone to look back on from then on. And they have uh, when he wrote, in most matters, it is more important that the applicable rule of law be settled than it be settled right. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was what I was kind of referring to earlier. He's, he's basically basically saying, listen, courts aren't perfect. Laws aren't perfect. But what's really important, unless it's a really terrible, terrible decision, mm-hmm. is that we kind of come together and agree that this is how it is. Uh, and then he went on to kind of say, ultimately, like, but you can overturn precedent if it is really, really bad.
1: Yeah, because if you didn't, if you just blindly followed precedent, then you have the potential for a bad judgment, a bad decision, infecting your society and your legal system. And if you just have to follow it blindly, even though it's a really bad ruling, that's not good. So you need to have an outlet to overturn those bad decisions. Mm-hmm. But what Brandeis was saying is, for the most part, you want to just leave it alone. If it's even remotely good, leave it alone. Let it ride. But— yeah. And that's really to me st- if you like middle of the road stuff, starry decesus is exactly what you want because yeah. it's like a it's the it's f- the fulcrum between going one direction where you just have like a whiplash going on because laws changing all the time and then the other direction on the other end of the spectrum where the law just does not change. It is just set in stone and that's that. This is like Okay, you want to follow tradition, you want to observe custom to have some stability, but at the same time you want to be able to let society evolve by having the laws evolve as new ideas and concepts come around.
0: Yeah, it's it reminds me of one of my favorite, I'm not a big axiom guy, but there's a handful that I really kind of inform my way of thinking, mm-hmm. and one is don't let perfect be the enemy of good. That's, mm. that's always been uh, as a sort of an underachiever in life. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's always been one I really stood on. And that's kind of what they're saying here is like, listen, if we go for perfect, you're just going to, because law is subjective too. Like these mm-hmm. justices are deciding things based on what they think, based on other things, but ultimately it's a subjective thing. So we can't just go back and forth forever trying to get a perfect ruling on something. Right. My favorite axiom is it has to be perfect or else I'm a completely
1: useless human being. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. So Uh. (laughs) over time, Chuck, (laughs) that concept of stare decisis, when when was it? It was like the, I guess, 1932 with Brandeis? Yeah, that's when he kind of laid the gauntlet down. And think about how meta that is. He was establishing precedent about when to follow or overturn precedent. Yeah. Pretty amazing stuff. I that guy that. deserves like a A, a university? <laughs> sure, a, a university named after I him. I bet there's a statue there. But over, there better be. Um, but over time, a, after Brandeis, you know, said that, they were like, okay, well, you know, exactly when is it okay to overturn a decision? And they've actually come up with a, a handful of kind of guiding bullet points uh, that are appropriately laid out in bullet points for us. Um that just kind of say like, okay, does it check this box? Does it check that box? And it's not like a perfect Scantron sheet where everything, every box is going to be filled out and you calculate them all and you say, yes, it should be overturned. Yeah. Like there's still a lot of subjectivity in weighing all
0: of this stuff, but it's a pretty good guideline if you ask me. No, absolutely. Um, well, the first thing, and this is a little bit counterintuitive, but it's easier to uh, overturn a decision based on the Constitution than it is a statutory law, and mm-hmm. uh, again, that seems counterintuitive because the Constitution can uh, feel so locked in. But basically what that means is, is if it's just statutory law, then you can change the law pretty easily. Like the Constitution is very hard to get changed, so it's easier to change a decision based on the Constitution than the actual underlying Constitution.
1: Yeah, because Congress can just say, oh, yeah, we, we we miffed that one. Right. And then similarly, too, Congress can actually create laws to overturn unpopular judicial rulings. Sure. Um, so they can make a law that, you know, if everybody's really mad about, say, some judicial ruling and Congress says, you know, our constituents are really up in arms, let's make a law that says the opposite of what that was just ruled. The, that law... Um, takes precedence over every ruling, including that Supreme Court ruling. So now judges have to follow that law until new precedents are set that kind of adjust it and make it evolve.
0: That's right. Uh, The next one is something called workability, which Mm -hmm. is basically like how difficult in practice is it really to implement this original decision uh, and if it's really difficult for lower courts to to follow whatever that original decision was in practice, then it, you may want to take another look at it.
1: Yep. Um, another one is reliance, and this one makes a lot of sense to me, too. It's um, really kind of uh, – um, what's that word that people use when it's this kind of like it lacks substance, though? It's it's not
0: concrete. It's kind of poofy. Koofy sounds great. I've never heard it, but – I. I like that word. We're going to go with that from now on. So
1: reliance, it makes sense, but it's a little poofy, I think, legally speaking, because what it's saying is if uh, if this judgment was not quite right, if the reasoning wasn't very good, if the deliberation wasn't perfect, but it's become so enshrined in society Mm -hmm. that overturning it would basically— really mess society up even temporarily, um, then you would not want to overturn that. that's um there's a good example of uh, the Miranda rights were under attack in two thousand, I guess from a case. and um, the court, I think in a very narrow, I think five to four ruling, said no Miranda should stay. it's on it's based on a flawed interpretation of the Constitution, but we've become so reliant on it to protect legal rights of people accused of crimes that, We're just going to leave it. They said, but it's already in all the TV shows.
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Law and order editors were just like, please don't, please don't. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Reliance is kind of the it's too late to turn back now, basically.
1: Yeah. The Um, bell has been rung. The genie's out of the bottle. (laughs) (laughs) The smell
0: is in your nose. (laughs) That's my favorite. Uh, The uh, the next one is abandonment, which is basically um, when the court says this is old-timey. Um, this is antiquated. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they looked at Lawrence v. Texas in 2003, uh, that overturned a previous ruling um, uh, about private same-sex acts, sodomy laws, things like that. Right. Uh, the Supreme Court came along and said, oh, you know, things have kind of changed and maybe we shouldn't be in people's bedroom enforcing laws about how they want to have sex. Yeah. They're like, we all just saw Brokeback Mountain and right. we,
1: really, <laughs> we really feel differently about it was this such now. a great love story. They wrestled. So there's also legitimacy, too, um, which is saying like, okay, there's a really good chance that if we start overturning previous decisions that people have come to rely on, that were actually good decisions, um, that it's going to to harm the legitimacy of the Supreme Court in the eyes of the public. Right. I can't think of a... An example, um, but that is – it is something that they take into account when they are considering overturning something or not.
0: That's right. Um, The next one, I'm just going to call it the was it close. Uh, That's when they can look (laughs) back at a previous case and say, you know, this was 5-4. There was a really spirited dissent. It wasn't, you know, it was – maybe a controversial case, but not necessarily, but just really, really close, Mm -hmm. uh, then maybe, you know, we could take another peek at it.
1: Right. Um, There's also quality of reasoning. I've kind of hit on that a couple of times that it's like, if you can look back and and look at the the judgment and the reasoning behind the judgment, and it still makes sense, then maybe kind of leave that law alone. If it's just completely antiquated, if it's um, racist, if it just doesn't jibe with the rest of you know, society today, then maybe it is ripe for being overturned.
0: Or other laws, like if other laws have come along since then to kind of erode it or negate it. Mm-hmm. Or if facts have changed. Yeah, that's a big one, especially when it comes to scientific findings and stuff like
1: that. Right. Like you find the moon is not made of cheese, right. so cheesemakers no <laughs> longer right. have to pay a
0: moon tax.
1: <laughs> that's a good
0: example in real, real life. Uh, was that off the cuff? Very nice. No, I wrote it down. Oh, that's still great. I could not think of a <laughs> an example, and that is the best I could come up with, sadly. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, so here's where judicial philosophy kind of comes into play, because uh, when it comes to being a jurist, as we've seen on the Supreme Court, especially mm-hmm. lately, uh, mm-hmm. there are a couple of different ways you can go as far as looking at the Constitution. You can be what's called an originalist, which, um, you know, some originalists say— you know what, the only thing that matters is what these founding fathers meant when they wrote these laws hundreds of years ago. Yeah, so like
1: whatever happens in society today, however it applies to the late 18th century, that is the law. That's what the originalists think. And there are actually
0: justices on the Supreme Court who are fervent originalists. That's right. Uh, And there are originalists that say, you know what's happened in the past 234 years is – uh some of these decisions a lot of them have subverted the will of the and the intent of the founders okay. and pragmatists come along and then say duh exactly <laughs> because what we would like to decide law based on is modern times and uh the context in which we live and the impact on our society as it is today mm-hmm. and those two things pushing and pulling is uh as we've You know, it's always been this way. But Mm -hmm. every, I think, generation, when they see the big decisions coming down, pay more attention to it. So right now, because of Roe, obviously, everyone is paying a lot of attention to this push and pull of originalists versus uh, pragmatist. Pragmatizing.
1: (laughs) But also the tension between originalists and people who follow stare decisis, too. Sure. There's a big tension between that as well. Um, and I was reading about originalism, Chuck, and Clarence Thomas is like a, a hardcore dyed-in-the-wool originalist. Like literally what the founders literally meant when they wrote the Constitution is law and anything beyond that should not be law. And he, if you read it, he kind of makes a pretty good case. It makes sense to an extent. But then you stop and realize what he's talking about is a civil law society. A law where you have a founding document of laws and rules and regulations, and it's super um, specific, and it covers as many bases as it possibly can. And then the, the judiciary has a very limited role in, in shaping those laws. You come before a judge and they say, oh, did you violate this this um, article? Yes, you did. Yes, you're guilty. Or no, you didn't. No, you're not guilty. That's the role of judges. And that sounds like Clarence Thomas' like, dream job, but he's in the wrong kind of society because we have a civil law society where judges are dependent upon to interpret the law correctly and sensibly and in a way that applies to the society at large. And that that really is intention with originalism big time.
0: Yeah. And I'm, you know, no shock. I'm a pragmatist and I'm, I don't think you should like just ditch the Constitution. But I think it's crazy to think about in 150 years in the in the in the future where we're flying around and and we look like Buck Rogers in the 21st century, man. I, I guess it will be 22nd century. I uh, can't wait. I'm going to be first in line to get that haircut too once the
1: silver <laughs> jumpsuits come out.
0: Uh, but it's crazy to me to think about going back to a time when they spelled the word time with a Y, you know, and say like, <laughs> no, we still have to go back, you know, four or five, six hundred years. To what these, uh, I mean, the world just changes so much. I just, it's crazy to me that the law shouldn't change with it. And the law has changed with it. I'm not, you know, saying that it hasn't, but I don't know. It's a little frustrating sometimes.
1: I'm kind of in between. I'm a starry decisitist, I guess you'd say, Mm -hmm. because I feel like pragmatism can be a little whiplashy. The law can change a little too much. Um, which we've seen, you know, where one administration comes in and makes yeah. a bunch of rules, and then the next administration comes in and and changes them, and it's it's really tough to say like run a business like that or to live your life like that. Um, but with Stari Decisis, it's it's veneration and respect to tradition and custom and stability. Uh-huh. But there's again, there's that ability to change, to be pragmatic when it's called for. Yeah. Um, I, it's again, it's really middle
0: of the road, and it's it's right up my alley. Right up your alley. Um, so th- let's get to the confusing part. I mentioned earlier that there would be an eventual breakdown of kind of how s- courts bind to one another. And when we're talking about binding authority, that basically means decisions that a lower court must follow mm-hmm. from an upper court in its jurisdiction. Uh, and, it, and it goes a little something like this. <laughs> uh, state courts are only bound by higher state courts in their own state. They're not bound by federal courts, except for the Supreme Court, again, the ultimate authority. Uh, they can strike down state court decisions as unconstitutional. And then you've got the whole, and I want to say mess, it's not a mess if you really understand it, but the whole sort of plate of spaghetti, which is the federal court system.
1: Mm-hmm. Which is take it based, away. <laughs>
0: man, I was hoping you're going
1: to take it all the way home. The the federal court system is based on those circuits that was established all the way back in the 12th century. Um, but rather than traveling around, I think judges kind of have home courts. But the point is these courts are related to one another. And there's 94 districts. Um, no, there's 12 districts with 94 district courts. It's very confusing. Twelve regional but, circuits.
0: Okay, thank you. With 94 district courts spread out among them, right? Yeah, each each regional court has one appellate court, mm-hmm. and then there's a court of appeals for the federal circuit right. that has nationwide jurisdiction over certain cases. It gets really confusing. Yeah, it really does, because you start out in district court, you end up in...
1: Um, I guess, circuit court maybe, and then you end up in appellate court. Um, I may have added a step there. You know, I like to do stuff like that. And then eventually you end up at the Supreme Court, which is the, the, the final arbiter of the law of the land. Um, but the Supreme Court tries not to overrule state law because the states have their own Supreme Courts, and they tend to be respected. The point is, in federal court, in a district, if you have a, a ruling made in a, a district appellate court, it will apply to all the courts in that district. But in the next district over, it will have no, no impact whatsoever.
0: Yeah, and you don't, you know, as a regular citizen, if you ever are bouncing through the bouncing your way up the court system, mm-hmm. you don't have to really understand it because you're going to have an attorney that says, well, now you go see this lady. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, now you go see this guy. <laughs> uh-huh. And you just go, oh, okay. Right. Like, and, and they're like, and by the way, you owe us another check. <laughs> or you could
1: just come listen to this on repeat several times. Yeah. Good luck with that. <laughs> right. So the other so the thing is, is like there there this this didn't land with me until like the second or third time I really kind of read over this. But you have to follow precedent. If your state Supreme Court rules on something, if you're a lower court and that same similar case comes to you, um, you have to follow what the Supreme Court ruled on that other case that that established precedent. You have to. Um, that's that's binding. That's what binding. that's called. But there are other times where um, if you're a lawyer or if you're a judge and you're kind of examining case law, there's other kinds of non-binding types of um, judgments or precedents that you can use to be persuaded one way or another to prove your case. Um,
0: but it's, it's not like incumbent upon you to actually follow those. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. Uh, one of those is what's called persuasive precedence. It is non-binding. And that, you know, that means exactly what you said. There's no real precedent, but maybe the decision is very useful. Maybe it's a very similar kind of case. And maybe it's a a principle that you can look at at least when you do make your decision. Um, Another one is called an unpublished, uh, when they say it's not for publication, their opinion. (laughs) And this is basically like, it doesn't mean it's literally not They just, like, wad it up and throw it away at the end. Right. It just means, hey, this is a – like, you see this most times in state trial court. Like, this is just some run-of-the-mill state trial case. The judge doesn't, like, hey, this isn't going to affect law or precedent moving forward. I don't want – if I mess up one tiny little thing, Mm -hmm. I don't want people to refer back to this and say, oh, but this judge said Mm -hmm. that. It's kind of like – it's sort of the let's go to lunch. Let's get to lunch already. Uh. (laughs) <laughs> and just get through this trial, and right. it's not really that important. So they just say it's not for publication. Yeah, and I guess it's up to the judge to decide that or not. But I guess so. I wasn't sure like about you, that.
1: Like you said, though, it's not like they just th- throw it away. It is actually published. It's just not. It means that this is a non-binding decision. Yeah. It's like, don't come You're looking look, at me. Right, right. I'm just going to TGI Friday. Right. <laughs> okay. You want to take a break and then come back and talk about some overruled precedents? Sure. Let's do it. All right. Game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go.
0: This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts.
1: You know, true love is always being excited from the first moment you see one another. And every time after that, it's taking long walks together in the summer or gazing longingly into each other's eyes and watching their tail wag when they chase a squirrel in the yard.
0: Well, the pedigree brand asked about believing and love at first sight. And honestly, the answer is yes. Uh, As everyone knows from listening to this show, we have pulled all of our dogs off the street that Emily and I have had over the years, either right off the street or through a local shelter and working with them. And they've all become valued family members. And we think they've appreciated it, too.
1: Yeah, Chuck, there is a pedigree loyalty survey that found that 90% of first-time dog owners report having a dog improved at least one of their relationships, and 80% of first-time dog owners are overwhelmingly more likely to have made at least one new connection as a result of getting a dog. And 95% of all dog owners say that the bond they have with their dogs is closer than they ever expected. Not a big surprise.
0: That's true. We all know that adopting a dog can lead to a lifetime meaningful connection and real love can exist between a pet and a pet parent. You got that straight. Pedigree is committed to helping more dogs find loving homes. Opening your home to a dog can help open your heart. And Love at First Sight is closer than you think because it's available at your local dog shelter.
1: Yeah, very important point. You can find love at first sight with the Pedigree Adoption Drive from June 7th to June 9th. And the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide.
0: That's right. So just visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Stuff.
1: Stuff. Stuff. Stuff.
0: Stuff. Stuff. stuff, stuff.
1: Okay, Chuck. It seems like they the Supreme Court overrules precedents every couple of days these days, but I guess they started out fairly slow. Um, in total, they have overruled their own judgments. So remember, if you look at the Supreme Court as a single body made up of all, you know rotating or incoming and outgoing members, but it's still as the same thing. <laughs> That's a great. I, I don't know how I just <laughs> like everyone knows what the Supreme Court is, and I just managed to make it confusing. Anyway, the Supreme Court has overruled itself over two hundred and thirty times. Yeah, in
0: in uh, the its lifetime. And it started in 1810. Right. But like you said, it didn't happen a lot. Uh, I think in 1895 with Pollock v. Farmers and Loan Trust Company, Mm -hmm. uh, that is when things really got rolling and the Supreme Court started overturning itself more and more because it's happened. I mean, that wasn't that long ago and it's happened. uh, How many times since then? Like well, two, it happened twenty-ish, two ten. It
1: only, yeah, it only happened twenty-six times in the entire 19th century, from yeah. 1810 to 1899. So everything since then, yeah, has been, you know, they've been going gangbusters. Um, and that that Pollock versus Farmers Loan and Trust had to do with the income tax, and that's actually a good example of Congress coming in and saying, "Oh, you overruled our ability to have an income tax. Here, here's the 16th Amendment down your throat." Right. <laughs> So um, the thing is, is like little by little, kind of like the little train that could going up the hill and starting to kind of gain steam and gain speed. If you look at the Supreme Court's um, uh, overrulings or overturned precedents, um, if you like graphed them on like a spectrum of time, mm-hmm. the, the, few, the present and, you know, the recent past would have a lot of dots on it. And some people say that's evidence that the Supreme Court has become much more activist and politicized over the years. But then other people say, well, I mean, it just makes sense that further back in time, they had much fewer rulings to overturn. Right. They were basically starting from scratch. Now there's so many rulings to consider and deliberate on that, yeah, of course there's going to be more overturns
0: because there's more precedents to be overturned. Yeah, I think a middle of the road like myself would say it's probably a bit of both. Yeah, I agreed. Um, uh, you know, a, a, a starry decisist like us. <laughs> yep. Um, here are some very famous examples and truly important. You know, because I mean, I think overall overturning precedent as a starry decisist isn't the greatest thing, but um, boy, the, it sure has been the right thing in a lot of cases. Um, And of course, that's it's all subjective, but that's my opinion. Um, Brown v. Board is one of the big ones. Uh, In 1896, Plessy v. Ferguson, the U.S. Supreme Court said separate but equal is how we should go forward. We can segregate things. We can make uh, black kids go to black schools and white kids go to white schools, and it doesn't protect, or I'm sorry, it doesn't violate the -hmm. equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment as long as... Long as things are equal and these schools have the same uh, school supplies and they're all th- they're all the same, it's all good. And that was later overturned. Uh, of course, the lower courts um, sided with it, but the ND, uh, the NAACP would eventually appeal this to the Supreme Court uh, with Brown v. Board. And this is one of those situations where like new uh, new data and new studies kind of came into play that mm-hmm. had happened since that original. Plessy versus Ferguson ruling Mm -hmm. Uh, and Chief Justice Earl Warren said, hey, look, we're looking at these studies now that say, yeah, these schools may be equal on paper, but inherently they are not equal if they are segregated. And that will will really has a big psychological component to a young black student, even if they have the same textbooks and school supplies, just the fact fact that they have to go to a different school Mm -hmm. is harmful to them.
1: Right. And so that clearly violates the 14th Amendment to equal protection under the law. And that made Brown versus Board of Education one of the most celebrated, not just court cases, but one of the most celebrated um, overturnings of a legal precedent in American history. For sure. Pretty much everybody can get behind Brown versus Board of Education, you know? Uh, There's probably a few holdouts. There are. I was researching it, and th- it's surprising. It's not everybody you would think. It's it's kind of like people on both sides are like it was kind of better before, but for the most part, society's like no. <laughs> no, no. Even if it was rough at first, like it was a step we needed to take as a society so we could evolve and stop living separately because that's ridiculous. Uh, what about Payne versus Tennessee? This one, I. I thought was surprising. It kind of flies under the radar if you're not paying attention to law stuff. But there, it used to be the Supreme Court upheld this idea that you could not have a victim impact statement at sentencing Mm -hmm. because they said that it violated the Eighth Amendment's protection against cruel and unusual punishment because this emotionally charged, you know— atmosphere right Right. before a person's sentence really increases the risk that they're going to get the death penalty. And in uh, a 1990, late 80s case, a guy named Purvis Payne who'd murdered a woman and her two-year-old daughter... um, uh, the, the woman's mother had given a victim impact statement, and apparently the Supreme Court uh, at the time in 1991 uh, was made up with, uh, I think, enough liberal uh, justices that they were like, no, you should be able to have victim impact statements. And Thurgood Marshall who was one of the most liberal justices in Supreme Court history, wrote a dissent and a critical dissent saying like, hey, you're taking stare decisis way too lightly. Like this is is tradition, this is custom, and it's like reasonable that, yeah, it increases the risk that somebody's going to be put to death uh, and you guys really dropped the ball. But now uh, the Supreme Court overturned it, so
0: to this day you're allowed to have victim impact statements at sentencing in the U.S. Uh yeah, that's um Roper versus Simmons was another. Uh, that was a case where they basically, um, where like kind of things had changed since the original decision. Uh, yeah, in nineteen eighty nine, Stanford versus Kentucky, um, that was. Uh, they found that it was unconstitutional to sentence a minor. Uh, I'm sorry, in two thousand five, they found it was unconstitutional to sentence a minor to death, which overturned. The 1989 decision, Stanford versus Kentucky, mm-hmm. and they basically said, you know, we've evolved since then. And in 1989, most people thought it was okay to to put a 16 year old to death. But now uh, things have changed, and we don't really feel that way as since a society. 1989, I know, the year I graduated high school. <laughs> yeah, uh, I could have been put to death in high school. <laughs> yeah, you could have. It's a good thing you didn't get in trouble, Chuck. I was a good kid. Uh, but they cited a uh, state legislature. Uh, and decisions there that outlawed it. uh, And they even looked at like sort of what was going on around the world as far as that kind of thing goes.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: There's another um, really
1: consequential uh, case that came before the Supreme Court and um, uh, had to do with their emergency docket, which we'll we'll talk about a little bit about later. But... um, In some cases where the time is of the essence, the Supreme Court will hear really important emergency cases on very short notice, will deliberate on it over a very short period of time and issue a ruling um, that does not have anything to do with anything else except for that one case ideally. But Bush versus Gore is a good example of how that's not the case because this is a, this is one of those emergency cases that they heard. And Chuck, I think we need to do an entire episode on the 2000 election because oh, it was yes. so consequential to the United States. And also, it's just super interesting too. But the upshot of it is that the, there was a really important quote that came out of it that said, our consideration, the Supreme Court was saying this, our consideration is limited to the present circumstances, comma, for the problem of equal protection in election processes generally presents many complexities. And some people say the fact that they said that their consideration is limited just to the present circumstances means that it's not precedence. Mm-hmm. Other people say, yeah, but that second part about how, you know, all, all election processes are different They're actually saying, like, don't just apply this rotely to it. So it is a precedent. And it's been cited a bunch of times since then, but even though it's a big controversy about whether Mm -hmm. those kind of rulings should be included at all in precedents,
0: Yeah, and that's sort of the – it's not a slippery slope. It's just sort of the system we have when there there isn't a a law about precedent. It's just sort of like, you know, we'll try and figure it out case by case.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I, I laughed because Slippery Slope came out of the Supreme Court, too. I think it was Souter, right? Oh, really? Yeah. I don't remember what case it that was. That term? Yeah. The Slippery Slope came out of out of uh, the Supreme Court. Did not know that.
0: That's a good mm-hmm. fact. That's why I laughed, because I'm the <laughs> biggest nerd on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty funny. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, we should close with Roe. Uh, we did a, a full episode on just the ins and outs of Roe v. Wade mm-hmm. uh, not too long ago. But um did that come out right after the decision had been rendered, I think. Did what come or out? or right before our podcast episode. Right after. It like was a right week after. after. Yeah. Okay. We were okay. very timely and topical. Yeah. <laughs> Don't break your arm uh patting yourself <laughs> on the back. Uh I couldn't remember if it was before or after, but at any um rate we should touch on it here at least, because that is uh, obviously the most recent really super impactful uh, time when, a super impactful time when the some members of the Supreme Court said, sorry, stare decisis, but even though we might have even said in our confirmation that this was a uh, settled law, we're going to reverse on that now.
1: Yeah, and the reason that Roe was upheld for so long, and we talked about this in our episode, that it was really roundly considered to be based on shaky legal foundation, uh, but it was upheld time and time again because it had become reliant. People had come to rely on it. So that reliance factor kept it from being overturned, even though a lot of justices considered it like, "Mm, this is not the best ruling we've ever made. Um, But then with um, Dobbs uh, versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, the ruling from, was it 2022? Yeah, that overturned, man, it's been a heck of a year. I know that overturned Roe, um, they they basically said, like, no, we're, we're just going to go ahead and say, like, this is not... This argument was totally fallacious. It was a bad, bad argument. But also, we're going to go one step further and apply our originalism to it and say the Constitution doesn't say anything about abortions. And if you're going to apply the 14th Amendment to it, which is what that shaky legal reasoning was for Roe, that... Um, uh, you couldn't deprive a woman of her privacy, aka liberty, that was guaranteed through the 14th Amendment. If we're going to apply the 14th Amendment, let's go back and talk about what things were like in 1868 and how people understood the law in 1868. And they would not have been okay with abortion because three quarters of states already had abortion outlawed on the books. Ipso facto, abortion has no constitutional protections. But again, they really went to the other extreme, which in this case was the far right, in saying, like, there's nothing in the Constitution about abortion, and no one had ever said it was in the Constitution, or that the Constitution explicitly, you know, protected women's rights to choose about reproductive health. What they were saying is, no, the judges kind of determined over time that this um, this was worthwhile, and this is what society needed, um, and they ruled on it. So it was a case of pragmatism, frankly, and originalism, which is where we're at now. And then eventually we may get to that middle-of-the-road, sorry-decisiveness.
0: Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. No one knows. Right. And it was also a case, though, where uh, if you're going to open up that can of worms with the 14th Amendment, all of a sudden you're looking at other decisions decided on that same rationale like same-sex marriage and uh, interracial marriage and same-sex sex sex, Mm -hmm. um, also called just sex uh, (laughs) depending on who you are Uh, Alito said you know but but you know it doesn't apply to that stuff it just applies to this and that's um, I think a lot of people worry like well yeah but the can of worms is now open and uh, I think immediately after, Clarence Thomas even said, like, maybe we should go back and look at these other cases.
1: Yeah, totally. And that's the scary thing about it, because it established a precedent. And a big one, too, because of that reasoning. But then, again, a Supreme Court can come with new sitting judges down the line and be like, this was terrible reasoning. We don't agree with originalism. We're going to overturn Dobbs. Who knows? I suspect that it's going to kind of
0: ping pong back and forth for a while. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, there's also a bit here that I move, your honor, that we, uh, that we cover this in a short stuff. Overruled. This this whole, (laughs) oh no. Uh, there's the whole matter of the shadow docket, which I think would make for a good short stuff.
1: Yeah, that was, that had to do with that Bush versus Gore 2000 election thing. It's like an emergency thing that they probably are using a little flagrantly these days, but I agree. I think that's a good yeah. short stuff. So. Uh, it's sustained right. after all. Okay, thank you. You got
0: anything else about um, legal precedence? No, I don't want to talk about the law for a while, so maybe yeah. we'll bump Shadow Ducket out to summer 23. <laughs> okay, that sounds
1: good. We did it, Chuck. We made it through legal precedence. Woohoo. hoo uh, If you want to know more about legal precedence, you can research stare decisis, originalism, pragmatism... All that stuff uh, on your favorite search engine. And since I said that and Chuck said woohoo, it's time for listener mail.
0: Uh, I'm going to call this just one email about our sitcoms uh, two-parter. We got a lot of great feedback. People really enjoyed those episodes, I think, which is Mm -hmm. always fun. Uh, We did miss a couple of things before I read this. Um, I don't know why. I guess I said that Rhoda... Was a spinoff of All in the Family? No, I did. It was oh, you weird. did? Okay. Yeah, I, I thought it might have been me. I, I knew it was Mary Tyler Moore. I don't know why I didn't speak up then.
1: If I could take one thing back in this entire podcast's history, it would be that. Because <laughs> oh, no. so many people wrote in to say that. And yeah. some also, most were very nice, but I, I want to give you a piece of guidance just as a friend here, everybody. <laughs> if you send an email and the subject line contains more than one question mark it means you're being hostile <laughs> and you may want to second guess sending that email because it makes you
0: look like a huge jerk you mean if the subject line is who does your research for four <laughs> question marks maybe <laughs> uh, also um, the Simpsons has little Maggie there are not four Simpsons yeah I really goofed that one I, I, I forget about Maggie I, I love babies but Maggie didn't do a lot on the show So I forgot all about her. Big apologies to Maggie Simpson.
1: Yeah, same here. I I didn't catch that either. Um, And then also uh, a lot of people, at least as many who wrote in about Rhoda being a spinoff of Mary Tyler Moore, um, wrote in about um, Roseanne and the two Beckys pulling Mm -hmm. a Darren switch, um, which I just walked right past. I was never a big Roseanne fan. I never watched it. I didn't um, either. There were a lot of Roseanne watchers. Uh, I'm assuming the original one.
0: Right, but that one falls under not so much a correction as a how could you not include this. And we get a lot of right. those, especially right. with stuff like this. Like, how could you not talk about Everybody Loves Raymond? How could you not talk about My Favorite Joe? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like we put together um, a, a list of the
1: 100 top sitcoms of all time in a two-episode format and just yeah. let her rip. Because, yeah, <laughs> it was inevitable. I'm actually surprised we didn't get more stuff. Yeah, And it's really interesting that... Almost everybody wrote in to talk about Roseanne, us leaving out Roseanne.
0: I know. I didn't watch that show. Yeah. Just didn't do it. sorry, everybody. Hopefully we didn't taint your experience. (laughs) Uh, But here's a fun email from Laura Lampert uh, that summed up her uh, admiration of this episode. Hey, guys. This is a complaint that these two episodes were too engaging and entertaining. (laughs) I really needed to sleep, but it wasn't happening. So I put my podcast cue on to play, starting with these two episodes, because... I really didn't find the subject that interesting. Uh, The thought was that listening to you guys drone on about a dull topic to me would (laughs) send me off to the land of Nod, but that didn't happen. Here I am at 3 a.m. sitting in front of my computer to find out about the universe that was mentioned. I guess the Tommy, uh, what's it called, universe? Tommy Westfall. Tommy Westfall universe. (laughs) Uh, As wide awake as I was two hours ago. Maybe you consider some duller, less interesting topics, guys, and then just leave them that way. No jokes. No side notes, no tangents, just drone on. You can label it "stuff you should sleep by," <laughs> and that is Laura Lampert. That's a good idea. That's a really good idea. We could just kind of talk like you know, this the whole time. That's right, about very boring things. Yeah, like Get legal precedents. We should have
1: de- that. Could have been our debut episode. Yeah, we have to was. re-record it, Chuck. We have to go back and give it another shot. Nah, yeah, just play it at half speed. There you go. (laughs) There you go. That's great advice to Laura Lampert. Great name. You can tell it's a great name because I remembered it and didn't have to ask Chuck. Um, Which is not to say that when I don't remember your name, it means you don't have a great name. It's just not quite as memorable. How about that? Sure. Well, since I just dug myself out of that hole, everybody, um, that's the end of Listener Mail. And if you want to get in touch with us like Laura Lampert did, you can send us an email, too, to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com.
0: Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts myHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: Childproofing people's homes is hard
0: In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Are you thirsty? Well, Richard's rainwater is caught clean before it even hits the ground. Rain is naturally pure, so there's no need for harsh chemicals or additives. Richard's rainwater contains no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing.